Good day, everybody. Welcome to Go Bold. On June 29th, the United States Navy launched the 28th edition of the biennial Rim of the Pacific exercise, which is also known as RIMPAC, the world's largest international maritime exercise, which began in 1971. This year's exercise, which goes until August 4th, has 26 nations, 38 ships, 3 submarines, more than 170 aircraft, more than 30 unmanned systems, and 25,000 personnel, which are participating in and around the Hawaiian Islands and in Southern California. RIMPAC provides a unique training opportunity while fostering and sustaining cooperative relationships among participants, and that is critical to ensuring the safety of the sea lanes and security on the world's oceans. Following this year's theme of Capable Adaptive Partners, RIMPAC forces will exercise a wide range of capabilities, projecting the inherent flexibility of maritime forces and helping to promote a free and open Indo-Pacific region. This year's exercise program includes gunnery, missile, anti-submarine and air defense exercises, as well as amphibious counter-piracy, mine clearance, explosive ordnance disposal, diving, and salvage operations. Additionally, the exercise also introduced space and cyber operations for all partner nations. We at Gold Bold are proud to have, as our guest today, Brigadier General Mark Golden, a Royal Canadian Air Force officer who is the Combined Forces Air Component Commander for this year's RIMPAC exercise. General Golden is responsible for operations in the air domain across the exercise, so his perspective is from the top. Let's get at it. Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala. And today I'm very happy to have on the show Brigadier General Mark Golden who is a Royal Canadian Air Force pilot, and he is currently serving as the Combined Forces Air Component Commander at the Rim of the Pacific Exercise, uh, often referred to as RIMPAC, uh, RIMPAC 2022, and which I think is super cool because the general is leading all of the different aircraft that are participating this year. And RIMPAC, as, as most of our listeners know, is the largest naval exercise on the planet. So I'm really excited for this chat. Um, so General Golden, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a great pleasure to have you on Go Bold. Pleasure's mine. Thanks, Judy. Thank you so much, sir. Um, so as I do with all of my guests, I ask, uh, what made you join the military? And uh, what prompted you to join the particular branch that you did? Yeah, well, so I guess right from a young age, I was exposed to the Air Force. My dad was a military member, so I grew up in the military and, you know, lived in different places. My dad was, uh, started as a loadmaster on, on C-130s, became a logistics officer near the end of his career. So you know, I guess through that exposure to the Air Force, through my dad and the different, you know, places we lived across the country and overseas for that matter, you know, that certainly was one of the motivators. Uh, and then, you know, finished high school and said, hey, what am I going to do? And I went to uh, Seneca College in Toronto, took the aviation program. I uh, thought maybe I wanted to be an airline pilot, but uh, that military, I guess, exposure I had over the years was always kind of sitting on my shoulder, I suppose. And 
And then one day recruiters walked into the college and said, Hey, do you want to join the military? I said, well, why not? So that's, that's my story. That's how I got in the air force. That's awesome. And then obviously the air force, there's so many different positions that you could be in or do. Um, which way did you track? Just so I, I get a little bit more flavor for how you got to where you are today. Yeah, of course, you join the military, you know, you get selected for pilot, you get through the pilot training and during the course of that pilot training, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, to be honest with you, in terms of what platforms I wanted to fly. There were times that I wanted to be a seeking pilot, fighter pilot, and then uh, it ended up being I was a transport pilot. So I was selected for that, uh, I guess, uh, um, area in terms of capabilities and and was selected to fly C-130s. And that's all I ever flew was C-130s, started out with the old E and H models. And then uh, worked on the project in Ottawa, interestingly enough, and then uh, was selected to, to be one of the initial cadre for the J model. And we bought those and took delivery in 2010. And, and uh, yeah, that's my background, air mobility. I enjoyed every minute of it. I mean, air mobility pods have exposure to all kinds of things, right? It's not just hauling equipment around the world. It's, you know, the tactical type of flying that you see in places like Afghanistan or, or whatnot. And uh, I, I have absolutely no regrets. It's been incredibly rewarding uh, being uh, in air mobility, being in the Air Force. Um, yeah, so that's that's how it all happened. I love it, General. And yeah, I've had the opportunity to go up in C-130s uh, on a number of occasions, uh, uh, both the, the tankers that Canada has and uh, and also the Jays. So yeah, it's really neat to, to get down low and, and fly them tactically. Uh, I actually had the opportunity to see a uh, a multi-ship parachute drop, um, or I guess a paratrooper drop, and uh, which was super cool to see. Yeah, so that, that's, that's the part of C-130 flying that I did do is the tackle aspect, you know, the, the uh, jumpers, dropping equipment from an airplane, flying into combat areas. Um, so yeah, that's the part that, that I flew or the role I flew with the C-130. So Oh, very, very cool. So, and now, uh, where are you today? Like, what is your day-to-day -day job in the in the RCAF today? What's your current position? So, I'm actually between assignments for you now, which is nice because I can come here and RIMPAC and just totally focus on the RIMPAC uh, uh, demands, I guess. But uh, my my job just before I came here, I was a deputy commander, one Canadian Air Division in Winnipeg. Okay. Um, working for Major General Kenny, and then I'm just on my way to the Air Staff in Ottawa once I go home and uh, going to be working as a Director General Air and Space Readiness. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, <laughs> that's that's super cool because we just did a chat with Brigadier General Mike Adamson on three Canadian Space Divisions. So there's, there's a correlation there, which is fantastic. Um, so let's talk about RIPAC specifically. You know, one of the things that I love about the exercise is it is obviously multinational and officers from all the different participating nations contribute to the command of the exercise. And so as the combined forces air component commander for RIMPAC, you were leading all of the aircraft that participated during RIMPAC, which I find fascinating. I think it, it speaks to the caliber of the Royal Canadian Air Force and the officers and the flag officers that it produces. Um, but it must have been such an interesting thing for you personally, like to, to, get, to get the nod to that, hey, you're going to be in that seat. I'd love to know what your thoughts were at that time and how you were kind of, uh, how you were preparing prior to RIMPAC actually taking place. 
Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I found out about a year ago when my boss pulled me in the office and said, hey, Mark, I want you to go and do this impact job. I said, yeah, that sounds great. My experience in air mobility, you know, it, 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 certainly I get the experience, I guess, being in the division, you know, my boss is the uh, is the JFAC, the Joint Air Force uh, Component Commander for all RCF operations. And we have a combined air operations center in Winnipeg that coordinates and plans and controls all that aspect. So I did have some experience there, but never worked in the maritime environment. So it was a little bit foreign to me. Um you know, coming here, okay, how does this work? How, how are we going to integrate with the, the Navy as a supporting component? Because the Maritime Component Commander is the lead component, and we supported uh, Commodore Grady in, in his scheme of maneuver, the thing he was trying to do. So it was, I would say, a little bit unfamiliar for sure, but I certainly had the confidence that I had the team built around me, right? I mean, I don't have to be an expert in everything, being a, a commander of a component. And you, you surround yourself with these amazing people from these all these different nations that you know send their best and brightest and, and very capable in, individuals with the experiences you need to do the things we had to do as a near component command. And um, yeah, that's that's really what I can say about that. So over the course of the last year, you know, lots of interaction with our partner nations, particularly within the uh, Air Component Command, which was made up of four different nations and the officers and uh, non-commissioned members from those uh, nations. And, and we had a plan and we rolled into this and, and, and built that uh, Air Operations Center basically from scratch, 136 people, four different nations, um, never worked together before, most of them, a lot of varying different uh, levels of experience. And very rapidly, we established that capability. And, and I can tell you that it's impressive. It's humbling to be a part of it, quite honest with you. Um, and just the power of those individuals and the capabilities these different countries uh, countries bring is, is a demonstration of what you can build very quickly from a coalition perspective. I love it. I think that is so cool. Uh, and there's so much to pull at there because you mentioned these four different nations. I'd love for you to, to describe who they comprised. But uh, beyond that, tell me how it was. So you're right. It's You don't have to be an expert in everything, but you surround yourself with the people who know what they need to know. So in terms of establishing that air operations center, how did you guys stand that up? Where did you stand it up? And what exactly was the focus of your remit during RIMPAC 2022? Well, we stood up here. There's an air operations center here in Hickam in Hawaii, uh, the 613th. So they provide us the space, all the systems that we needed uh, within that operations center. And that was kind of the starting point. Um, then we bring, like I said, all the different folks in together that, that provide that, that, that capability through the air tasking cycle. And so what an air operations center does and, uh, you know, right from uh, a targeting, it's called targeting, but it really doesn't mean necessary targeting in terms of what you're doing from an, an air effects perspective through to building a master uh, air plan. Then turning that into an air tasking order that tasks the different units. So this is all the operational level the Air Operations Center works at. Then we task the tactical units to go and do the things they need to do to meet the Maritime Component Commander's objectives um, in the different airspace, which is complex, right? I mean, uh, when you look at the airspace here in Hawaii, the space we are working with is compared to the size of Texas. It's hard to compare that to something in Canada because, of course, Canada is a different uh, scale in terms of country, but that's a lot of airspace, right? right. So yeah. you're planning these missions, coordinating those missions, controlling those missions in those airspaces, up to 200 missions a day um, from various uh, fleets, whether they're Air Force, Navy uh, fleets is uh, included in that tasking process. 
and and off they go and they do their missions and then they come back and you repeat that cycle on a, a 72 hour basis uh and and yeah that's what the aoc does you know we had four different countries right we had canadians a big portion of the 136 people were canadians 50 50 people uh, mostly air force but also some, some navy people as well okay uh, and the Americans, uh, of course, uh, the Navy, as well as the United States Air Force, um, and then Australians uh, from the Air Force and the uh, Royal New Zealand Air Force as well were part of the team. So, so an impressive, I guess, demonstration of interoperability, building this team incredibly fast, incredibly fast, like, you know, in a matter of days, and then doing the things we need to do to command control these air operations. It's absolutely impressive what we did to be, to be blunt. I love it. I, I think it, it sounds very impressive. And um, it's interesting, all of those nations that you mentioned are five ice nations, which, uh, which, you know, you have a, a, I guess, a common understanding of each other to begin with anyway. So I, I'm sure that helped. Um, so talk to me about the numbers of platforms that you guys had available to you and some of the objectives that you guys had during RIPPAC this year. Uh, we had 170 airplanes and then a few unpiloted uh, air, aircraft as well. Um, some of them, like I said, from the Marines, uh, from the United States Air Force, uh, maritime forces as well, including, uh, you know, we have cyclone helicopters, two detachments on the back of two of our ships, the Winnipeg and Vancouver. And we also had two uh, CP-140 Aurora uh, anti-submarine warfare aircraft as well. The detachment goes along with that. So that's kind of the, the part of it, but as, we also had an air carrier wing as well. So we have a, the Abraham Lincoln was at sea and you know, the, what the aircraft carrier can provide in terms of air power is absolutely impressive and phenomenal. So we, well, at the tactical level, those, uh, those aircraft are commanded obviously by the air wing, the coordination in, in, in planning and command and control of the operational level is done, done by the AOC. Um, so yeah, really a, a vast array, I guess, of capabilities. What was really neat to me is that, uh, you know, the combined aspect, including helicopters off the, the back of many of those ships from 26 different countries, being able to, from a combined perspective, kind of get everyone together and provide these effects, but also from a joint perspective, right? You know, United States Air Force capabilities uh, in, in enabling a maritime operation or operations over the sea. You know, the example I love using is the MQ-9, the Reaper, you know, very much an Air Force asset, never used before in RIMPAC. So when we came here and said, hey, we got to integrate this uh, MQ-9 into to maritime operations, like, okay, how are we going to do that? Well, it proved itself, you know, from all different aspects. The, the exercise has uh, many different uh, objectives and, and different, uh, I guess, uh, environments that I can explain, happily explain, but how that MQ-9 is integrated in the, the maritime environment, how it's, it's integrated in overland, how it can provide joint fires in the SYNCX, for example, when we sink some ships. And, they, uh, you know, any kind of effect, even an amphibious assault. So we saw that integration, again, not coalition only, but joint as well, which is a, certainly an objective that we had. I, I love that. I'd love to pull at that thread with regards to the MQ-9 uh, Reaper. But I'm, I'm wondering if there were any other types of unmanned aircraft that you might have had available to you. That was the only one that I had as an aircraft component commander there were some unmanned surface uh, ships and i'm certainly not an expert but i know they're introducing that capability within the navy right um yeah that was it the only the only ones we had were the mq9s 
Okay, obviously they were staging out of somewhere in Hawaii, but one of the things that I'm keen to ask about is, um, and I hear it a lot in context of the United States Air Force who talks about uh, agile combat employment. I don't hear it as much with the Royal Canadian Air Force, but perhaps it's a it's a different terminology or different different uh, phrase. But um, I'm sure you're familiar with ACE, and I'm wondering if that was exercised to any degree at RIMPAC. I would say this there, Jody, that you know we didn't put a label of ACE on it from a, a combined force component, but really what ACE is is exactly what I talked about, and we're really good at this in Canada. Is how do we take these different capabilities within the different services, including cyberspace, special forces, Army, Navy, Air Force, and how do we work together? And you know, if there's a capability provided by the Navy within that uh, service, for example, and I speak about the United States Navy, um, it's how can we employ now something for the Air Force to pr that provides similar type of effects, but make it more joint? And that's the agile part of it, right? That if you're within the Navy, for example, and you have these capabilities and you're staying within that service, you're probably limiting yourself in the agility aspect where now you're able to maybe reach into these other services and provide the same desired effects or maybe enhance for that matter. And that applies to the land component as well. You know, when you're thinking about, you know, the SYNCX, for example, and I, I think it's a great example because not only do we provide, uh, you know, uh, deliver uh, munitions from an air perspective, but also from a surface, subsurface and land perspective as well. So that's that to me is the describes ACE. When we talk about the concept here, I go, yeah, we do that in Canada very, very frequently. We work really across the services more in a joint environment. And I think when the Americans are talking about this and they're best to describe it for sure, but really that's what it is. So I don't consider it a new concept from my perspective. I think it really is just exercising that cross-service interoperability. Right. And my understanding is also that they want to remain agile as ACE denotes, but you also want to exercise dispersed operations. Um, you know, if you happen to get denied in a particular area for whatever reason, um, were there any of those efforts that you guys had as part of RIMPAC? I would say this, you know, obviously we're limited by the, the geography, but, uh, you know, when I think about dispersed operations, so the, the components we were, or the units we were commanding and controlling from an operational perspective are based out of four different airfields as well as the shipborne assets from all kinds of different ships. And then, you know, basically floating airfields for that matter with the Essex and the Abraham Lincoln being the aircraft carrier. So I think when you're talking about dispersed operation and particularly with an MQ-9, I'm sure you're more than familiar with the capability about command, you know, really, uh, you know, using satellites to control these things really across the world. And um, um, I would say that's the demonstration of dispersed capability, what we were able to exercise here, really bringing all these different units, uh, certainly from an air perspective, from different location. Yes, all within the Hawaiian Islands, but uh, certainly demonstrates, I think, that uh, that aspect that you, you talked about, Jody. Hey, everyone. I'd like to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Cubic recognizes that coalition training is a critical enabler for a potential peer fight. Cubic has been in the business of providing the Department of Defense and coalition partners the instrumentation needed to deliver mission-critical training and operational environments that deliver truth in training across multiple domains and that is the data sets that help operators understand what happened. 
Cubic looks forward to continuing that support with next-generation authentic training needs for their customers. Cubic is a great company who values what we at Go Bold are trying to do in sharing perspectives from allied warfighters. We thank them for their support, and we encourage you to learn more about them at cubic.com. Now, back to our guest, Brigadier General Mark Golden. So, uh, General, talk to me a little bit about the different platforms that you had. You've mentioned the unmanned aerial vehicle. You've mentioned helicopters. But there's also, you know, uh, strategic assets that that are, I I suspect, were available to you in terms of uh, strategic bombers and uh, fighters. So I would love it if you would run me through some of the more notable events during RIMPAC from an air component side. Yeah, no problem. So first, I just want to maybe briefly highlight the exercise, right? So we, we really exercised throughout the full spectrum of, uh, of operations from humanitarian assistance disaster relief exercise, where we implemented and supported that exercise with uh, mobility through helicopters, as well as uh, a surveillance capability from the MQ-9. There was anti-piracy operations as well. There was, uh, you know, the SYNCXs, which was sinking of two ships that I know you're familiar with. Uh, and then kind of ramping up into a scenario-based thing that, that certainly challenges at the operational level in terms of how we would uh, uh, conduct those operations, ending with the amphibious assaults demonstration yesterday, which really combined multiple components. So from an air perspective, you know, some of the direct uh, assets that I had under the Air Component Command were, uh, you know, uh, we had uh, tanker aircraft, uh, United States Air Force KC-135s. We also had another tanker from the Marines, a KC-130 Hercules as well. Uh, within that as well, in the Air Component Command, we had A-10 aircraft, which is a really neat uh, experience for, for us in terms of what they can deliver in terms of very lethal capabilities. An AC-130, and I like saying 130s, as I said, I'm a C-130 person, but an AC-130, which is the gunships, we, we like to call them, and that was a J-model Hercules. So we coordinated a lot of their training, you know, where they would go into a range, provide some fires uh, type of training to their personnel. Uh, you mentioned the uh, F-18s from the Marine Corps that were under our command as well. And I think that pretty much hits everything I had under CFAC perspective or the Air Component Command perspective. But then, of course, like I mentioned, there were the naval aspects. Well, uh, an any submarine warfare capabilities. So we, you know, there was the uh, Japanese P-1, uh, Canadian CP-140s, um, Australian Indian P-8s, uh, for example. So that's that uh, any submarine warfare capability combined with some aircraft, including uh, H-60s off the back of heli- uh, ships, Osprey aircraft as well, in terms of movement of personnel, which was again was demonstrated yesterday in the uh, the uh, amphibious assault demonstration, which kind of was the capstone, I guess, of the exercise. So, you know, you see all these different capabilities uh, from different components and different um, services and melding all those together in terms of providing uh, really interesting type of effects for the exercise as I talked you know, across that full spectrum of operation was an amazing challenge. It, it really stimulated us at the operational level. Okay, we have this objective to, to meet. Can we use A-10s in that role? Can we use you know, another strike capability, for example? So, so you know, we're talking about that agility aspect and trying to bring all that together with your allocated resources, right? I mean, uh, you have what you have. And you got to make it work the way you have, and that that tests the planners and it tests the uh, the operational uh, execution of of those operations. So, hopefully, that describes a little bit of what we had. 
No, it, it does. Um, and you didn't mention any strategic bombers, and I could have been wrong. Maybe you didn't have any attached to you guys. So what we had there, Jody, so we had basically we have two operating areas, one here in the Hawaiian Islands, mm-hmm. as well as off the coast of Southern California. So when you talk about strategic bombers, yes, there absolutely was one, and I, I did omit that. So we had there was a B-52 that was participating in those uh, those operations off the coast of Southern California, as well as surveillance aircraft, as well as some really interesting mining demining capabilities that they were exercising down there. So so yeah, I certainly was focusing on the Hawaiian Islands, but yeah, I can't forget the the the, the great things they were doing off the coast of Southern California, and, and you know you mentioned the strategic bomber, the B-52, in, in terms of meeting some of those objectives. So, and again, that dispersed operation, right? Those B-52s take off from a long ways away and they meet a time and they do what they need to do in, in terms of the exercise and then they go back home. That's a classic example of dispersed operations. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's, that's very, very true, uh, General. I, I love that example. Um, so tell me, were there any things that you guys were trying to experiment with or test or evaluate during RIMPAC? Well, certainly at the tactical level, you know, these units come forward, they have their own unit level training objectives. I would say, you know, uh, I, I don't want to speak too far out of school here, but in terms of CP140, you know, working with partners that they necessarily haven't worked with closely every single day. And that's the beauty of this exercise, right? We can train at home in our own waters with our own resources, but you don't get that the challenges of working with other nations where in some cases English is not their first language, but we demonstrated that, Hey, we know when we have, for example, a CP 140 working a sub and they're handing off now to let's say an Indian P eight or a Japanese P one, they work through those processes and obviously they pre-plan this all and, and able to seamlessly hand off, you know, persecution of these, these targets, in this case, maybe a submarine and maintain the contact with the submarines. And you know, I think about as well, uh, having gone out to the Winnipeg there about a week or so ago and talking to our, um, our cyclone crews, you know, a fairly new airplane where to continue to develop capability within the platform. And uh, again, without getting into too much detail, the way they're able to collaborate and work not only with the ships, but other uh, airborne assets and do the things that they need to do in a collaborative fashion by just a single platform out there are things that we saw uh, we are able to develop here. And like I said, you can't get that anywhere else. It's, this is the place to do it. 26 nations, 38 ships, 170 aircraft. So we're really able to test those and 25,000 people, by the way, we're really able to t- test those and develop our training tactics procedures. So at the end of this, we're a more ready force as a combined force. Yeah. And part of that, I I suspect, is also enabled by the fact that the Hawaiian operating area is also instrumented. And uh, I don't know if that factors into into the uh, exercise in a large way, as opposed to when you, when there are actual specific test exercises, but um, but as a multinational exercise, I wonder if those instrumented ranges help uh, in any of the things that you do, or is it more um, is it more focused on actually kind of replicating what would happen in, in a real world scenario? I think, I think it's a little bit of both there, Jody. I think, you know, some of the ranges we have here, again, are very advanced ranges. We're able to do things that we can't necessarily do in other parts of the world. And, you know, these ranges are very uh, established in areas that are very, very safe. And, and of course, environment always a consideration with these things as well. But, you know, uh, for example, able to launch drones 
against ships or, or targets that we can now defend against, things like that, that you just can't do anywhere else. So when you talk about you know, what this this operating area, what the training area provides, it, it really is, uh, you know, it's leading edge and, and you can't replicate that everywhere else. You're able to now go into a certain range, dispense munitions, defense uh, tactics as well in the electronic warfare realm, let's say. Um, and, and like you said, you, you can't do that everywhere else. And it's very specific in where you can do that here as well. But but that's a training um, enabler that we we just don't enjoy every single day. Sure. And, and in that context of training, um, did you guys have an opportunity to exercise any live virtual and constructive type training in addition to the manned asset or the actual platforms? Like I'm wondering how you enabled Red Air, for example. Like, I mean, you could have had, you know, actual Red Air aircraft or uh, sometimes that can be synthetic. As a red air goes, actually, that was one of the things that we had to coordinate within the EOC. So I guess we had the benefit of seeing what the bad uh, guys were going to do, I suppose, when you talk about uh, allocation of uh, resources for red air. Sure. But we had to obviously, for safety reasons, build that into our plan, right? Because we were, we were the coordinators of airspace. So yeah, there were actually real uh, assets uh, dedicated to red air, including uh, Hawker Hunters and, uh, and uh, S6s. But we also provided some of our resources as well to try to build that scenario and provide some unique and, and uh, realistic, I would say, in, in most cases, training. For example, we we took A-10s and we gave them the red air. We took some of the uh, F-18 Marines and gave them the red air, certainly at the end of the exercises, and provided that real-world stuff. As far as synthetic stuff goes, uh, not so much, but what we did within the operational level is that scenario type of thing. And we really exercise, I found it really interesting in this exercise, is that a lot of exercises that certainly I participated in the past, you know, you're really all really up to full combat operations almost on day one. What was neat about this exercise, and certainly under leadership of uh, Admiral Boyle, who's a, a big thinker, and he talked about, you know, we really kind of exercised that progression and really tried to, to, you know, deter was his main objective to really kind of demonstrate the capability of the coalition and provide off ramps. So what we saw uh, certainly throughout the exercise and more so at the last four days or so was scenario injects that really exercised the targeting process that really exercises the command aspect and really kind of got us thinking about about different ways to solve a problem and not just the delivery of, of brute force, for example. So that I think is what when we're talking about synthetic training environments or something more a little, uh, I guess, something that's a little bit more um, exercising that command component, that's that's what I saw in this exercise. Interesting. Um, so, General, when we think about, um, you know, RIMPAC is nearing an end now. And when we think about what you have experienced and what you have seen in terms of the assets that were allocated to you, uh, and the things that you did. Um, what are some of your big takeaways moving forward from a combined air component commander perspective and also from an Royal Canadian Air Force perspective? Because um, they're linked, but they could be separate. Yeah, I mean, I'll speak from an Air Force perspective first. I mean, I think I kind of hinted at it that you just can't get this training anywhere else. You can't you can't simulate uh, 
collaboration with coalition forces. You can't simulate building relationships. You can certainly train and get a certain level of readiness at home, but really, you know, to exercise and get to that high level of readiness, which we've done here uh, with our CP-140s and our cyclones, as well as our command component with 50 Canadians in the ESC, you have to participate in an exercise where you are working with partners, you are working in coalition, you're challenged, you know, to, to kind of find ways to employ air power in that environment with not only, like I said, the coalition, but across uh, across the services. I guess when I kind of reflect back from an AOC perspective, you know, like I said, I came here never having participated in a RIMPAC, never really having been in operations in the maritime environment, but surrounded with these great people from these different countries that have that experience. So as an air component commander, I don't have to know everything. I have to have people around me that can that have that knowledge and know how to make things happen. And that's the part to me that I'm walking out of here going, hey, formidable force, 26 countries, the, the, the amount of power that represents not only from a military perspective, but really, you know, showing overlapping interests and in countries coming together and doing the things that we may need to do someday across that full spectrum of operations and doing it in such a very impressive and efficient manner that when we walk out of here, it's, you know, we're doing outbreaks this week in terms of what we accomplished. But my reflection on the last month, five, six weeks uh, was exactly that, that we can bring countries together and, you know, on the other side, maybe not the other side, but through COVID and, uh, and really kind of deliver the things that we need to as a, as a massive coalition. And that, to, that to me is really what, what I'm taking away from this is it's a formidable force with amazing people with all kinds of talent that we can, we can do some great things together when we work together. Yeah. Beautiful. I, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. And, you know, I, I mentioned that we would pull on that thread about the UAV, but, uh, and you kind of mentioned it in terms of the SYNCX. I, I suspect it was involved with the SYNCX, but it also, you know, provides great um, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance capability, uh, let alone its kinetic abilities. Um, yeah, I, I just love to kind of get a little bit more of a flavor of what what actually happened with the UAV since it was the first time at RIMPAC. Yeah, certainly first time at RIMPAC, first time I've certainly been at an operational level employing, uh, you know, uh, unpiloted uh, vehicles in the air, MQ-9, of course. Um, and what I saw here was, was pretty interesting, right? Um, again, not really knowing how to employ them at first. But certainly we, we developed that over the course of time so much so that, you know, the, the, what they deliver across the full spectrum is amazing. So, you know, I, I go to the starting out at the humanitarian assistance disaster relief. So able to provide information to those that are trying to provide uh, support to those who need it in, on the ground. I mean, that, that is information that is hard to damage, for example. You even act as a, a command and control platform and sending images in real time that, that enable commanders on the ground that now can, you know, in a humanitarian assistance disaster relief, deliver that aid, that the assistance that's required very, very quickly, of course, in coordination with civil authorities. And then, you know, you see this platform and then uh, you can put uh, Hellfire missiles on it. And that's what they did during the, uh, the SYNCX. They're able to do that surveillance as well as deliver, you know, uh, lethal effects from a, a Hellfire perspective. Another interesting aspect that I saw in the employment of MQ-9 is there's a personal recovery uh, type of operation that we do over land uh, where, you know, this, this scenario is a down pilot, but it could, it could be anything. You think in Canada, it could be a lost hiker or, or anything for that matter. And that airplane can go up and search 
uh, space and provide information in real time to those on the ground or those that are coordinating some sort of rescue recovery. And that, that to me is, is incredible, uh, powerful use of that platform because it can cover so much space. It can stay in the air for a very, very long time and, and persist in over an area that they're trying to search for, for example, and support the recovery. And, and you know, the, the, like I said, the capstone thing being the amphibious salt, it was kind of neat to see it because we're all watching uh, from a point of view on the near the beachhead. And there was a, a screen there providing the, you know, you get the, uh, the MQ-9 there. Again, no one's on board. Uh, you can probably uh, assume some enhanced risk in those situations and it's over over the beachhead or providing you know a, a surveillance from a distance and again enabling those commanders on the at the ground level at the tactical level to do the things they need to do so what i saw i guess in summary with the mq9 is this vast array of surveillance directive lethal fires in, in all kinds of different roles that we exercise through here um, it, it really is uh, an impressive platform, I think, and something, you know, as you're looking forward to building the Air Force in the future, Air Forces in the future, I believe has to be a, a component of what you're trying to build personally, I believe that. Yeah, it, it, you answered the question I was just about to ask you, you know, how do, how do you see that capability moving forward? But I think you, you summed it up perfectly right there. Um, General, is there anything that I haven't asked you yet that you're keen to mention from your perch there at RIMPAC? Um, because, you know, I, I try to keep myself abreast of what's going on, but I don't know all the different things that are happening. So um, if there are any other aspects that I didn't touch on that you think are important, I'd love for us to kind of tackle that now. Uh, I, th I think, you know, when I think about RIMPAC and I reflect on it, you know, it started in 1971, right? 28 iterations of it. Canada's been in every single one of them. Um, so, you know, I, I see RIMPAC as an incredibly important exercise. We are a Pacific nation back home. Obviously, our interest in maintaining a secure and prosperous Pacific uh, region is, is very much in our interest in all the countries, uh, frankly, for that matter, that are part of the Pacific and, and Indo-Pacific region. So, um, you know, I guess... You know, COVID kind of kind of hit us hard, I think. But what this uh, demonstrated to me is that we still have capable forces from countries all around the world that can come together and provide an incredible uh, amount of uh, military effects as a combined and joint force. Uh, so I feel like we haven't lost a beat, to be quite honest with you. I think uh, coming out of here, uh, obviously our readiness le levels as a combined force are, are higher than they were than when we walked into this. Um, and, you know, I, I, I guess my final point being, as I talked about, you know, the, the amount of dedicated and skilled and, and committed individuals from all these different countries where we have overlapping interests and we can come together and very rapidly build things you know and the air operations center being a classic example it's not a form unit a lot of the units that come here are formed units. They train together uh, back home and they come here and then integrate from a unit to unit perspective. We built essentially a unit in a very, very short period of time with, uh, with you know, like I mentioned, members from four different nations and able to do the things that we had to do from a, a component command perspective. That to me uh, is probably the thing that I walk out of here the most that, that we are very, very good at what we do as a combined force. Canada is very, very good at what we do. We have some extremely talented individuals at the operational level that, you know, that we exploited, I guess, or we enjoyed in the EOC, as well as these units, uh, the CP-140, the two of those, the two on the back of the ships, the two ships and, and what they accomplished here. It just really is, uh, like I said, very humbling, I suppose, but certainly uh, comforting in the fact that I know that uh, we can build a force when and if needed. I love it. 
I love it, General. What an amazing uh, career experience, and uh, you know, I'm I'm sure you lost a lot of sleep during uh, during <laughs> during these past six weeks, but uh, but uh, I I hope it was uh, I'm sure it was all worth it. Incredibly rewarding. I would say one of the highlights of my career, no doubt about it. Love it. Love it. Well, I, I look forward to chatting with you again as you, you move forward in your career. And I thank you very much for spending some time with me and, and sharing exactly what was happening during RIMPAC and, and some of your reflections uh, during the exercise. Thank you, Jody. And thanks for what you do for forces back home and, and the coverage you provide all these great people that are, are there in the military. I certainly appreciate you telling those stories. Uh, well, I, I, you're part of that now, General. So, and I hope that we can re-engage again as, uh, uh, you know, when you're in your next position. Thanks, Jody. All the best to you. Thank you as well. You too, General. That, my friends, was Brigadier General Mark Golden, who is the Combined Forces Air Component Commander for RIMPAC 2022. Thanks, everybody. Hope you have a wonderful day. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.